My guest today is a committed advocate for sustainable investing. She understands impact, ESG, and the SDGs inside and out. But most of all, she's enthusiastic. Rachel Etherington is a specialist financial advisor at Crestone. She helps her clients manage their wealth in line with their values. But that's only half the story. She's on the board of the ACCR and she's on the board of Future Super. She's committed to spreading the message of how sustainable investing can build a better economy. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Every time I speak with Rachel, I come away a little bit wiser about the world of sustainability and finance. But more than that, I come away with a renewed sense of optimism. And today's chat was no different. I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, For all the show notes and links, jump onto my website at johntreadgold.com and you can leave us a review on iTunes because that really helps to spread the message of the show. And someone else who's helping spread the message is RIA. That's the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. They have over 300 members managing more than $9 trillion in assets globally. And they're the largest network of people and organizations engaged in responsible, ethical and impact investing across Australia and New Zealand. They do great work and they've come on board to help support a series of upcoming episodes featuring the leading names in responsible investing. Head to responsibleinvestment.org to find out all about it. All right, on with the show. Let's get into it. Here's my chat with Rachel Etherington. Here we go. Rachel, so great to finally get you on the podcast. We've had some great conversations in the past. It's uh, it's about time we recorded one. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's my absolute pleasure to be here. Let's just wind back a little bit. You have such an interesting background. You worked in all sorts of roles all over the world, but you came back to Sydney a number of years ago. You took a, a role at Crestone. So I'd love to hear about what drew you back to Sydney and why Crestone? I would love to tell you some terribly sort of intellectual reason as to why I'm back in Australia, but quite frankly, it comes down to the sun, the blue sky and the ocean. You know, growing up in the UK, blue sky was something that was certainly in short supply. You know, we would always sort of joke, um, my father would come rushing in saying, there's a yellow orb in the sky, what on earth is this? because we so rarely saw the sun. So, uh, and it has a direct impact on my sort of mood and my mentality and my overall enjoyment of life. So I moved back to Sydney and it was really interesting, John, because I was in sort of sustainable investment or impact or ESG or the intersection of environment and sort of financial mechanisms. I've been involved in this whole area for a very long time since I had this huge sort of epiphany about everything in 2000 seven and I was in Australia at that point and the conversations were certainly shorter uh, with a smaller group of people the idea of such things as biodiversity as a as a material uh, investment risk and opportunity were were very niche that was something I was working on in 2007-2008 and then when I came back here about a year and a half ago I was really struck by the expansion of understanding around, let's call it sustainable investment. Let's use that as a catch-all for ESG and ethical and SRI, because obviously there are lots of different 
strategies within it. But I certainly realised the interest in this had grown significantly in Australia. I think that's for a number of reasons that we can go on to talk about. But it was really encouraging and exciting to me. I initially started working, um, and I know you've had her sister on the call, but with Cassie Liebman and Ben Krasenstein, who are deeply committed to um, impact investment and investment with a tangible environmental or social outcome, which was a great joy for me. But what I realized is that I wanted, there was, I wanted a bigger platform because I want to help as many people as possible who were at varying points of this spectrum. I wanted to help as many people as possible manage their wealth in a way that was in line with their values and in line with their worldview. So I went to Crestone. I'd been having conversations with them a little bit. I was really deeply impressed by the integrity of the leadership team. That was the sort of number one criterion for me. Obviously, the wealth management industry does not have the best of reputations. Um, and for me, I really had to feel that I was, if I were to join, it was, a, it was a company whose values I could and did share. So I certainly felt that was the case. And also what was so interesting about Crestone, John, was that they had absolutely sort of begun their process of integrating sustainable investment into their offerings but they themselves acknowledged they had further to go so we as two sort of parties agreed that there was a big opportunity with my ex experience expertise and passion and the direction in which the business needed to and needs to and wants to go I thought this would be a great basis from which I can really affect change and, as I say, help clients who are at different points on their sort of level of understanding really help steward and guide and support them through that so that they did they cease to have such a sort of schizophrenic approach to their overall prosperity. You know, a lot of clients would be wanting certain outcomes for their children and their grandchildren and yet were increasingly aware that they were investing in ways that were compromising those outcomes. Great. Well, look, whenever a guest uses the word epiphany, I have to follow up. So tell me about this epiphany in, in 2007. To give a little bit of background, and I'm sure this is deeply boring to, to your um, listeners, but I, I grew up in a household where what's probably now called uh, sort of um, responsible capitalism or con conscious capitalism was really modelled by my parents when they set up their own engineering business. They adopted incredibly progressive policies. And for example, the amount that they as owners and founders could earn as a multiplier of the most junior people, there were really clear sort of guidelines around many of those things. So I grew up in a household with a lot of entrepreneurialism, but also really strong kind of values basis and set. My father, for example, is, is old enough to remember or to have been born, you know, near the end of the war, remember rationing remember you know the scarcity of resource and so some, that was something that was always very much drilled into me and that was part of our sort of family culture you did not waste resources that this is something that you couldn't just expect to always be there for me it became very clear that the environment actually was 
is a humanitarian issue. If you care about people, you have to care about the environment. So I, I was an active member of Greenpeace at 13. And in 2007, I just realized that if humanity is going to continue and is going to truly prosper, we need to have a radical reset in how we manage our natural resources. Climate change science was unequivocal even then. I mean, it, I was probably late to the party, but you know, give me a chance because I was <laughs> relatively young. The fundamentally unsustainable way in which we manage natural resources was unequivocal. And it was also a very interesting time, John, because the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity, this work, TEEB, by um, an ex-Deutsche Bank executive was coming out and was huge, hugely important in advancing the conversation and really bringing focus to the fact that ecosystem services, water, fertile soil, storm protection, all of these things have an enormous financial value. You know, there's this phrase that I use far too often, but the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, not the other way around. So all of these things sort of came to a head. And I just realized I had to dedicate my life and my career to this. Um, and I thought it was a wonderful intersection of something that was values driven, that the planet needed, people and planet needed, but also, quite frankly, that had the opportunity to make money from, drive rapid change. And, uh, and a final thing that I think a lot of people lose in this whole discussion is you're at the vanguard of change. You're at the vanguard of creating a new society and a new way of living. And I found that just so fundamentally exciting and continue to. So all of these things interlinked. And actually, I was uh, fortunate enough to meet somebody who I believe to be one of Australia's sort of foremost environmental finance pioneers. And that was Oliver Yates when he was head of environmental markets at Macquarie. We met and these things aligned and I just thought, yeah, this is absolutely where we need to go. And now we're increasing our understanding of the financial value of ecosystem services. Everyone else is going to get this too. And we're all going to pile into this and there's going to be a price on carbon as there was in Australia briefly. People will be incentivized to reduce their carbon commitment. We can get to a world where energy is free and clean and truly renewable. And I thought the whole world was going to pile in. That was sort of useful naivety. Uh, it hasn't quite worked out that way, but that was definitely my epiphany. And for a very personal reason, which I certainly won't bore your listeners with, but had very sort of profound trauma in, in my family history, which really sort of gave me an understanding of the preciousness of life and the importance for me for life to have a, a real meaning beyond that of sort of get up, go to work, make money doing whatever it may be and, and, and come home, go to sleep. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's some really interesting insights. And, and I too share that feeling that it, how exciting it is to be at the vanguard of change. That's what really drives me. Um, and that's what you know, led me to start this podcast and, and running my consulting business. And you know, many years ago, as you said, when we briefly had a price on carbon in Australia, you know, I was, had this sort of view of, of the, the snowball rolling and growing bigger and bigger. But then the Copenhagen climate talks kind of deflated that bubble. But progress 
has perhaps been slower than we may have liked, but it's still going and we're here um, and there are exciting things happening. But I mean, on that thought, you know, I am certainly in a, in a sustainable investing bubble and hear lots of things and hear all about the outperformance of ESG amid COVID and, and more and more people are interested. But uh, in terms of, of how mainstream that interest really is, I'd love to hear your view of having your ear to the ground, speaking to clients every day. What's your view? Has the you know, bushfires at the beginning of the year, COVID-19 crisis, has it really built interest and, and momentum as we've, we've sort of heard? It's a really interesting question. And I too probably am in a bubble because of course this is my business, this is my passion, and I speak to people who have a fundamental interest in that. So, you know, my prospects and my clients sort of become self-selecting. But there is no doubt in my mind that, as you say, on the back of the bushfires and then COVID, that there has been just this exponential increase in interest in sustainable investment. I think it's done a couple of things. One, yes, absolutely. Robust, well-run, sustainable and ESG strategies have done very well during COVID. And we can go on to talk about some of the reasons as to why that is. I think those two events and COVID particularly has really highlighted to people the interconnectedness between environment, society and the economy. The economy doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's part of this, that broader fabric. And I think the other thing that I've really seen happening with clients is it's really pulled people up short and created a sense of innate vulnerability and reinforced the fact that these exogenous threats that have seemed to some people unlikely or in the future can happen, do happen, and can have an enormous impact on on daily life and indeed on investment portfolios and returns. You know, this is that wonderful phrase, the sort of black elephant. So, you know, the black swan uh, event um, and the elephant in the room. So something sort of with far-reaching consequences that we've known about. And I think particularly in relation to climate change and the fundamental sustainability or lack thereof of the way in which we're living, that's been really brought to the fore. I think that's the number one sort of strategic goal of a lot of my clients and our clients. And I would also say um, at a Crestone level, that's that's happened as well. Um, Mike Chisholm is our CEO and he has made it unequivocally clear and I like to think I've been very much sort of part of this, that sustainable investment for Crestone is one of our absolutely sort of top organisational priorities. And then again, that's for a whole load of different reasons. One, you know, I very much like to think we're good people and we want to do the right thing. But there's no doubt it's, it's also because of increasing client demand. And what we're seeing in Australia is this, you know, unprecedented um, intergenerational wealth transfer and there's just no doubt that the next gen do not want to, nor do they believe it's possible to continue business as usual. And I think the other penny that's really dropping across the world right now, and I, I often say this to people, is climate change risk and opportunity within investment portfolios. That's not an ideological discussion. That's not a commentary on where you sit on the political spectrum. It's a reality 
that has to be managed. The risk has to be managed. The opportunity should be seized. I was on a session with David Blood from Generation Investment the other day, and you know he described the um, opportunity set within decarbonisation as extraordinary and, and literally the biggest economic opportunity of our time. So for me, this comes back to the excitement of, about change, that you don't have to show your colours in relation to climate science and carbon price and all of that sort of stuff to realise that the world is changing and that these things represent the future. I love this term black elephant. I think that's great. It sits really well next to John Elkington's uh, green swan. I think they're kind of you know, pointing to the same issues, but uh, some really great imagery. Indeed. This was um, uh, the term coined by an environmentalist, Adam Sweden, to encapsulate the cross between, you know, these un- un- seemingly unlikely unexpected events with enormous ramifications and, you know, a looming disaster that is visible to everyone yet no one wants to address. We have this spectrum impact investing at one end and, and, I, and I sort of suggest ESG at the other. And, you know, there are a variety of ESG strategies, some of them a lot lighter green than others. You know, how do you guys sort of judge funds on that we sort of don't quite have enough frameworks to judge and compare what's the crestone model for for judging esg funds i think the first point is to make at crestone which is again one of the reasons i joined the organization is that we don't manufacture or create our own product and, and nor are we part of a sort of vertically integrated institutionalized bank so we're not told to sell as it were x or y so what crestone does is really search domestically and internationally for the best products, the best funds, the best strategies. And a component of those, of course, are and an increasingly large component of sustainable ESG and impact funds. We look at everything on its individual merits and what's important for us, you know, we are managing clients' wealth. We are meeting clients' needs. So it's not up to me to dictate which funds clients go into. But naturally, my client base is certainly at the deeper green end of all of that spectrum. So I think there are a number of different things. I mean, first and foremost, we do all of our own due diligence internally, and we need to be really sure that any fund lives up to its label. Now, there may be some funds that clients have interest in that are at the lighter sort of end of that spectrum. And that's fine if the client is aware of the risk and and associated returns and all of those things uh, in, in terms of going into that fund. That's absolutely fine. Again, it's not up to us to impose a particular sort of value structure on them. But I think it's this notion or this belief that they need to be fully aware of what they are buying and what they're not buying. We don't just accept if if a fund tells us, you know, we have an ESG process and it does X and Y. Lots of people can tell you that. We have to feel that we're able to communicate to our clients exactly where their money is going and how it's being invested. So that's just part of our overall due diligence process. I think there's a really important point here. Everyone says, oh, sustainable investing, ESG, it's all too complicated. And it does sort of make me laugh. And I think, well, hold on a minute. You know, since when were hedge fund strategies not complicated? That doesn't mean you all just throw up your hands and walk away from them. Sustainable investing has the sort of added necessity of it being central to the continuity and the sort of protection of capital, the value creation, value destruction, 
and ultimately if we're going to be very extreme you know the continuation of humanity so this is something i'm afraid that we do all have to face and we do all have to spend time understanding the complexities i think it's wonderful that there are different funds and different strategies in the market that's exactly what you want i would never want to put to a client a portfolio that just had one investment thesis per asset class for all the obvious reasons and for you know you would never do that with a traditional portfolio the risk is far too concentrated and so we're really interested in exploring different strategies and different approaches but we, as I say, we undertake, we've got about 22 people, I think, in our investment um, team here in Australia, which I think is the largest sort of wealth inv uh, investment team in, in the country. And the amount of due diligence that's done by um, the, the, that investment team, plus our CIO, Scott Haslam, plus our investment committee, plus sort of sector experts sort of like me, it's really comprehensive. And I think because of the potential for greenwashing, because of the complexities of this rapidly sort of growing and burgeoning market, we explore and attend to the detail of these funds in a way that I'm very proud of and in a way that enables me to look clients in the eye to answer any sort of detailed questions and to really feel that they are fully cognizant of what the exposure does and doesn't entail. Let's talk about impact investing in public markets. I think, you know, it's such a, a debated issue. It's growing. There are some great funds out there and, and there are strategies. What's your view? What does it take for a, a fund manager to be able to call a, a public equity strategy an impact fund? So I'd say a couple of things. One, it depends how you define impact. And that in itself is something that different people have different um, interpretations of. As you've talked about a lot on this podcast, previously and traditionally, impact was about intentionality, additionality, and measurability in terms of both achieving a financial return, but also achieving a social or environmental outcome, a measurable and a, a, additional social or environmental outcome. So that's the traditional definition of impact. I, and I'm talking very much at a personal level here because I don't think any, everyone at Creston would agree with me, and that's absolutely fine, but I believe that if, if impact's going to be mainstream, which it needs to be, it might be helpful to move beyond that definition and say that any core product or service that ultimately has a positive impact on society or the environment could be considered an impact investment. If you subscribe to that definition, then absolutely equity strategies can be impact strategies. They can certainly be sustainability strategies. I think the challenge in Australia is a, is a unique one for reasons I'll go on to talk about. But globally, I'm very excited by and very proud to bring to clients some of the sustainable listed equity strategies that we have on on platform so within those the, the ones that you view as as operating well you know i think measurement is the real challenge because impact investing traditionally in the pri in private markets you know you're you're embedded in that company and and they're producing data that you need and and they have that really clear data on the impact they're having but in in public markets it's difficult because you you don't have as large a shareholding you may have a kind of a minuscule shareholding really and to be able to demand um, new forms of data how do you find that this new world of impact measurement 
in public markets um, evolving? We work with some listed equities funds that embark upon very, very robust impact reporting. Yes, one has to make sort of um, assumptions and there has to be sort of certain amount of hypotheses within them. But as measurement tools become more robust, become more easily available and people become better versed in them, that's not an impossible task to um, embark upon. But again, going back to my two definitions, if you are to go with a sort of looser definition, and if you can then say, by virtue of product X or service Y, increasing its market share, servicing more customers, being profitable in doing so, all of those sort of fundamental aspects of success within this capital economic system in which we're operating, that for me demonstrates that you're having impact if your core product or service is innately sort of positive from an environmental social perspective. So if you're producing residential solar panels, if you are providing high quality telehealth services, there are some wonderful, wonderful companies providing recyclable and biodegradable Uh, building materials or plastic alternatives, repurposing fishing nets to produce pellets that can then be used for a whole variety of different manufacturing um, reasons. So it's really interesting, John, because if you look at a lot of early stage companies, and if you look in sort of VC portfolios, even here in Australia, a lot of people set up businesses with the the express purposes of addressing a social or environmental issue. I think we should not lose sight of that, that a big listed company selling, you know, wind turbine components or uh, semiconductors or electric vehicles or indeed less glamorously EV infrastructure they are at their core addressing a social or environmental need. Now, they may not embark on the sort of um, impact measurement that we have traditionally seen in the private unlisted sector, but that doesn't, in my view, that doesn't and shouldn't negate the impact that those companies are having. And actually, if we're talking about rapid, systemic and scalable change, you need a exposure to those companies and I don't think perhaps that they should be penalized for not conforming to the sort of traditional impact measurement. I think that's right and I think at one end there are sort of two elements pulling against each other and at one end is that vital piece of the puzzle which is how do we influence big companies who are listed on the stock exchange. I think that's a huge issue and then at the other end we don't want to dilute the term impact so much that Companies that don't fit the bill may use it just to fit into that universe. So two important factors pulling against each other. And and I guess it sounds like you know, you're in the right position where you've clearly got the background of, of being passionate about this space and, and just wanting to offer the best opportunities and to influence those companies that um, really do have the power to shift the needle. To me, that's where the debate really lies. And, and it's good to hear that you've gone so far in your thinking and when people say there are no opportunities in public markets, I think I think that's changing really quickly. And if you do dig deep, then it's sort of up to individual judgment. 
Right, and, and I think you're absolutely right in that summation, John. I think the other thing that we haven't touched on, but I know you've discussed a lot in your um, podcast in the past, is this whole notion of active ownership. And again, if clients understand that strategy and like that strategy, that's a very, very viable and can be a very powerful tool of ESG and impact investing. You know, having a seat at the table and being able to affect change within big listed companies is a vital part of shifting this whole sector. But again, it comes back to, as, as you say, about disclosure, about understanding by the advisor, understanding by the client of really what the nature of the strategy is, what it can and can't do, and ensuring that everybody's really comfortable with that. And of course, different strategies and different asset classes have their limitations and have their benefits, just as they would in sort of legacy or traditional investment. And so let's shift then to some other asset classes impact investing in its more pure form. We've got green bonds growing by the day and uh, Crestone was a a cornerstone investor in the um, Australian Unity's new green bond fund, um, also backed by the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Can you tell us a bit more about that bond? What's the structure? What's unique about it? Oh, it's wonderful. And it's something I'm really proud of Crestone for getting involved in and cornerstoning, as you say, alongside CEFC. So what's unique about it? It is the first in Australia to be a portfolio of fully green bonds. Some of those bonds have a sort of social or um, integrated social and environmental component. But the number one priority of these issuances is around decarbonisation. And I think the fact that the CEFC have themselves been involved in, in not only the creation of this particular fund through their cornerstone investment, but actually the creation of the original bonds and the um, use of proceeds and the structures around all of that talks to the authenticity of, of these bonds. So it's the first of its kind in Australia. That's sort of significant we have in Australia some sort of some sustainable um, ESG bond strategies, which we also like. But this is unique in the fact that it's a fully green bond portfolio. And so the primary goal of these bonds is to contribute to the lowering of carbon emissions. I was really thrilled with this, John, because Creston's the only wealth advisor to take a cornerstone investment position, which is a really sort of significant move for, for us. We're very excited by this. The bonds themselves were originated, many of them with the support of and in collaboration with the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And I think this really could be a sort of game changer for the green bond market here in Australia. You know, it's a solid, defensive, sort of low-risk proposition. It's an important part of a balanced portfolio. Um, We would always recommend you know, fixed income exposure for the majority of clients, both globally and domestically. And this gives clients exactly such exposure, but in a way that is in line with an increasing number of clients' fundamental sort of values framework and and worldview. In public markets, uh, as opposed to private, I, I think there's a really interesting evolution of the SDGs as a really useful framework. And it's starting to to dawn on me that it's a really great framework for making a public equities strategy for measuring its impact. Um, How do you guys and and how do your clients sort of respond to the SDGs and that as a a sort of a value base and and a framework for measurement? 
the naysayers will say, it's too complicated. How can you translate SDGs into actionable in investment strategies, you know, with risk-adjusted returns, etc.? And you can stand and criticize on the sidelines, or you can actually step in and say, this may not be perfect, but this is a really sensible and sound point from which I can start. And let's not underestimate the fact that the SDGs have enormous sort of global agreement. That in itself is remarkable. Um, and if you get very bright, well-intentioned, adept, skilled people operating um, from an investment perspective within the SDGs, you can develop some very robust and interesting strategies as a result. So was it designed for this? No. Is it important in my view? Yes. And does it give those funds and um, investors a starting point from which to operate? Absolutely. But again, it comes back to this point about everybody who gets involved with these strategies and investments, understanding really what they're buying and what they're investing in, what can and cannot be achieved. Investment is an incredibly powerful tool for change. And it's increasingly a tool that cannot be separated from environmental or social considerations. But it is not the only tool for change. So, of course, there needs to be other structures getting involved in, for example, the achievement of the SDGs. You know, government is the obvious one. And I think the SDGs were created, uh, you know, as a unifying set of goals you know, by the UN. And, and while they may not have been quite so prescriptive to talk about the role of finance. I think the mandate was broad. It was, these are the key goals, and now everybody in the world has a role to help achieve them. You know, that was moving on from the, from the MDGs from 2000 to 2015. And I think that's really powerful. And the fact that we now had, as you said, smart people running funds, pouring over these 17 goals and trying to work out ways to solve it, just that alone, just the, the reflection, the realization that these are what we need to be focused on and that directing capital towards them is one part of that. You know, I think that's a huge step. And then the fact that we need, we need a framework to unite them all and, and this is, is on its way to be the one. So I think, I think that's great. And that's sort of given me a lot of energy in the way we can look at impact in, in public equities as we've talked about plenty. So. Look, I think that's really good and more and more people are engaging with it. It was um, a little bit disheartening a few years ago that it was, you know, people were really on board with the SDGs or they didn't know what the acronym meant at all. But that's changing really rapidly. I think the, you know, the colours and the UN linkages, it's all uh, growing and all really positive. So that's great to see. We've brought a lot of optimism, a lot of positivity about what's happening going forward. But what are some of the blockages? What's sort of frustrating you at the moment? There are lots of blockages, there's no doubt about that. You know, the phrase too little, too late often sort of echoes around my head. But I think the need is such that one cannot despair. And I'm sure I've heard you or your guests say on this podcast before, you know, the best antidote to despair is action. And that's absolutely where I, I believe. And I work very hard to remain optimistic and positive because it's the greatest motivator. I really don't believe great things come out of a feeling of, you know, lack of agency or fruitlessness, etc. So um, I very much work hard to stay optimistic. I also think that there are these things way out of certainly my control or indeed anybody's control that are happening 
you know, for example, the physical um, effects of climate change that are going to inevitably push us further down this towards a sustainable future. The inevitable policy response from the PRI talks a lot about this, that their central thesis is a really interesting one, that things are going to become so unbearable for so many people as a result of climate change, that policy will just have to change and it will have to change um, quickly and rapidly. And I think the question isn't if, it's when and how, whether it's going to be sort of concerted and, and, and neat or it's going to be sort of reactive and messy. And I think it's probably, depending on where you live in the world, it's going to be you know, a mixture of those two things. But where I see the blockages, um, well, there are several, and it depends where you're looking at this. If you're looking at sort of utility scale renewables in, in Australia, for example, there's no doubt that sort of lack of federal regulatory certainty has been a blockage, for example. That's one. Another blockage is lack of real understanding and, and knowledge, and that's at all different levels. And that's not to cast dispersions. That's just by virtue of the fact that Australia has come to this somewhat later than some other countries, and particularly the European Union, for example. And so I think people are scrambling at all levels to keep up, to become well-versed, to understand these things and to be able to confidently talk about them or invest in them or whatever it may be. So I think lack of knowledge is definitely a blockage. I tell you, the, one of the biggest blockages I see from an investor perspective or an investment perspective is there's still this prevailing belief that if you're to embark upon something that has any kind of positive social or environmental outcome, it means you're going to be foregoing financial returns. That is one of the biggest hurdles to the rapid uptake of, of all of this stuff. In fact, I'd say that's probably the number one. And I was joking with my CEO the other day that, you know, as a youthful individual, I try to change the world on the basis of uh, people's innate goodness. And realise very rapidly that that will get you so far, but um, not as far and as quickly as you as you really need to. And look, I'm I would include myself in that. We're all you know we're designed to have an element of self-interest. So if you're asking clients to give up on returns significantly, even if it's to produce something that creates value from an social and environmental perspective, you're not going to get take up to the degree that you need to. But the economics of all of this is really changing. So the economics of renewables, for example, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, a really interesting piece of research the other day in, in that wind and solar energy is now cheaper as a new form of energy than any alternative, certainly any fossil fuel alternative for 72% of the world's population. So the economics of all of these things are changing, whereby, as I, to go back to one of my previous points, these are attractive investment thematics and opportunities, whether or not you're motivated by social or environmental outcomes. We are talking to our clients about two funds, that one of which works in the water market, one of which works in revegetation, regeneration, and increased yield of Australian farmlands, for example. These are non-correlated, well-performing, diversified assets that even if, as I say, 
none of this other stuff matters to you you should have exposure to if you're solely keeping a, a, an eye on bottom line and return so the economics of these things are changing and i believe that's only going to continue as the market begins to value for example decarbonization or human capital or whatever it, whatever it may be whichever ESG issue you want to identify, as they start to value those things more accurately. Again, to go back to the UNPRI's inevitable policy response, they've done some really fascinating modelling on the value destruction and value creation of these inevitable policies as they see them on the public equities markets, for example. So, I think there are a number of things. See, I've, I've, I'm innately optimistic because I've come back to why those blockages are, are being overcome. You know, so this perception that you would have to forgo financial returns to achieve social and environmental outcomes is decreasing because the economics of it and the facts behind it are changing and that's for a mixture of different things that's just you know your classic sort of what were new technologies the cost of those things are coming down combined with regulation changing combined with economies of scale and all of those sorts of things so that particular blockage which has been a really significant one is changing under our very noses every day which is another reason it's such a pleasure to bring to clients these types of opportunities because you're not asking them to forgo financial returns to achieve values aligned investment you're asking them now or you're encouraging and helping and advising them on doing all three things at the same time well, that's it. It's a blockage, but it's certainly an opportunity. So um, that's some good optimism to leave it on today. But um, before I let you go, I'd love to get a book recommendation. This isn't, isn't really a book, but um, it, it certainly should be. I, I mentioned this right at the beginning of our conversation, um, the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity. This work was done initially you know, however many years ago, 13 years ago, but I still think it's absolutely excellent and central to so much of our understanding around these issues so i would certainly suggest people um have a good read through um through that work who's that one by that's by pavan sukadev good stuff well i can put a um i can put a link in the show notes for people to follow that up well thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure and a joy to talk to you and i love the podcast and i uh, look forward to hearing future episodes so thank you so much john oh no pleasure to have you and thank you for all of your insights and then hopefully we can maintain our conversations you always learn so much so thank you thank you so much 